Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome. How's everybody doing? Skip's back with us. How you doing? Skip has been building in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And are they finished? Oh, no. No, not so much. So this, I think, is probably typical that when God sends you somewhere, he sometimes sends you somewhere different. So he went to, what, Shawano, Wisconsin? And then they said, we don't need you yet, and they sent you to Cedar Rapids, huh? Yeah, right. And in between, I went to uh, Manistee, Michigan. Okay. For a habitat. Cool. Well, just doing it all. Did you work in Tulsa? Uh, Did you work in Tulsa when they built that? No, I didn't go there. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome Thanks. back. We're, we're glad to have you. Um, so this as by way of introduction for the podcast, of course, this is, I'm Pastor Longman. Um, this is the adult Bible study on Revelation from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Today's August 15th, 2021. I don't know. This is like episode number 20 or something, but whatever. It'll, it'll be on the podcast. They'll know. Um, so as usual, let's begin with just Q&A. Any, anything you want to ask about or know about or quiz me on or we I, we used to I used to do this when I was um, a vicar and we always called it stump the chump back then so stump the chump I'm the I'm the chump yeah uh, is the chair in the middle for anybody that that's the dunce chair yeah the chair in the, that's the Jesus chair it's the Jesus chair he's always present with us that chair is there for when we do video conferencing because it's convenient to put a microphone right on that chair and it kind of gathers the sound. So, yeah. But that or to just make your mind go, you know, wherever it might go. <laughs> what else? Any other questions about anything? All right. Um, for those of you who are at the early service, you've already heard this. If you're at the late service, you'll get to hear it. You'll get some information from our study team who's looking at how to replace Cameron or to fill the position that he vacated. Um, we have looked at some demographic information. We commissioned a study that's, what, 30-something pages long. Um, but we've boiled that down for you to give you some insight into what the demographics say. And then we also look at the different positions that we're considering, um, just so that you have some idea of what the job descriptions look like. Um, and then next week, we'll have a survey for you um, because we want to get your input about um, where you see ministry needs, what kind of person you think we need to have um, as part of staff, um, you know, where we need to be focusing our attention and that sort of thing. So pretty simple, straightforward survey, 10 questions or something like that. But that will come out next week. So the study team's moving forward and they will have um, their full report and recommendation at the October Voters Assembly. So that's kind of where we're headed with that. And the idea of the study team is basically to figure out what. Um, you know, what role are we looking to fill? Once we figure that out, then we'll turn a call, a call committee loose so that they can go out and find who and, and figure out who they So there's a pool of people yeah. for each one of those? Yeah, positions. yeah. So, so within, the, within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, some of those are commissioned positions, some are ordained. Um, one is ordained. Um, there is a roster of people within the LCMS who are eligible for, the, for calls. Um, so what we'll probably do with the call committee when we get to that point is, is, among other things, we will put a call out to the congregation that says, hey, if you know somebody from another church or from another area that you think is a good fit, give us a name and that will be included in the names that we consider. 
I, I fully expect somebody will give us Cameron's name, but <laughs> but um, it's I, we have a saying in our house. You may have heard it before. Lutherland ain't that big, so probably each one of you knows people in roles in different places in the country not too many degrees removed from you that might be a good fit and so we certainly want to take advantage of what y'all know to help us as we fill the position however we do that. other well, questions yeah the thing that you give us next week will we fill it out then no, we, you'll so have sure you'll have a couple of weeks to do it. So we're gonna we're gonna certainly give you a little bit of time in the service to do it right then and there if you want to. Um, we'll let you take it home if you want to think through it and that kind of stuff, and we'll have it online as well. Um, so we'll have a couple of weeks to get that completed and back before we compile it all and look at it. So, so the answer to your question is yeah. <laughs> you failed to mention that your name was submitted to the call committee by one of the members here. That, oh, that is true. That's, That's true. a good point. Um, in fact, I have a seminary professor to thank for that. <laughs> because that's how my name wound up on that list was, yeah. was um, if you didn't know Peggy Jones, um, her nephew yeah. is a professor at Concordia Seminary. And she went to him and said, hey, we're in a call process. We need a guy. And he was like, oh, Eric's your guy. <laughs> and, and that's how my name got thrown into the mix. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So sometimes that works okay. For me, anyway. Well, we need to call him again. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bodie, you got anybody else? <laughs> yeah. The, the advantage of having somebody in the seminary is they've seen guys coming through for the last several years, and so they have some a better sense of who's out there, um, which is kind of neat. But any other questions about that or anything else? We should call a pastor that has seven children like... <laughs> like Bella Vista, yeah, Pastor Gorshin. He's got a boatload of kids, yeah. yeah. He, they took that whole be fruitful and multiply thing seriously. Triple the Sunday school. Several of theirs are adopted, but yeah. Which I don't know, like five of them are adopted, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. All right, let's begin with uh, devotion then. Today is August 15th. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 you mortals the Lord has told you what is good this is what the Lord requires from you to do what is right to love mercy and to live humbly with your God and the title of this is live humbly with your God here's what Luther had to say even the most spiritually minded people have a difficult time escaping the temptation to love themselves as soon as they see that they're better than others in some way, they begin to love themselves and look down on others. The scripture provides us with a frightening example of this in the story of Saul. He was well thought of and he had no equal in Israel. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. He was filled with the spirit of the Lord, but he didn't do what Micah demanded in this passage. Therefore, he fell into terrible disgrace and was rejected by God. The church fathers spoke about the temptation to love ourselves in the following way. No matter where you throw the head of a thistle, it will stand straight up. Similar to a thistle, this wicked attitude easily takes root in the hearts of believers. It is difficult for believers to avoid self-love. As Augustine or Augustine or however you want to say his name said, this is the only evil that sticks to good works. That's why God allows his people to slip into sin, just as he allowed Peter and David to fall. Shocked by their fall into sin, 
believers humble themselves. They're fearful of thinking of themselves too highly, and they want to keep in mind how weak they still are. That's why David cried out, my sin is always in front of me, Psalm 51, verse 3. Believers humble themselves by recognizing and looking at their weaknesses and sin. They try to avoid feeling proud of their works or of the gifts of the Spirit that they have received from God. And this is what it means to live humbly with your God. We should be genuinely modest and humble, wanting to remain in the background. We should never look for honor and praise from the good works that we do. Sobering reminder. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the rain that you sent uh, on Friday. We certainly needed that. Um, We thank you for all of the blessings that you pour out upon us. We thank you especially um, that you have given us an opportunity to gather around your word and to be fed and nourished by it. Uh, Be with us today as we we dig into chapter 7 of Revelation to um, open the eyes of our hearts to see and to understand, and more importantly, that we might recognize your Son in every word. Um, So guide and lead our discussion today that all of it might bring glory to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 7. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter just so that we've got that fresh in our minds, and then we'll jump in. The sheet that you should have, by the way, has the number 8 up in the top corner. Um, covers Revelation 7, 1 through 17. Um, if you need it, there are copies of it over here on the table. So, chapter 7, and I will abridge this slightly. Um, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And here's where I'm abridging a little bit. 12,000 from the tribes of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out the loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the gospel of the Lord. Um, before we jump in, thoughts, questions, observations, anything that jumped out at you as you heard that one again? Right. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. A paradox is a great word for that because it sort of takes all these metaphors and, and twists them. Right. Yeah. Oh, and and not only that, I mean I think one of the things that you kind of see in Revelation is the lamb as this sort of fierce conquering yeah. being that evokes fear in those who don't believe, and yet we think of lambs as docile and meek and humble. Right. Um, and, and you know, both of those things I think kind of capture the the, who Jesus is. He's all of that, yeah, which is kind of neat. In the book of Revelation, too, I, I find the whole book to be like very confusing. Yes, totally. There is, and we've talked about this before, that you know, so much of what you're seeing in Revelation is imagery that evokes something. And, and a lot of it is, is symbolic in some way or another. So we've talked about the fact that Revelation is a, is a particular kind of literature. It's called apocalyptic literature. And, and it has to be read and understood by its own rules, which is that it uses symbolism, imagery, metaphor, you know, numbers play a role in things. All those kind of things figure into it. Um, I've, I've likened it before to kind of looking at a political cartoon um, because there's so many things that the imagery evokes and, and carries for you that isn't necessarily obvious on the surface. And this is not a kind of literature that we read regularly kind of in, in our day-to-day -day lives today. So, so we're coming at it as a, a sort of foreign thing to, to jump into it and to understand what John is doing here. It, there's, there's been some, I think speculation is probably the right word for it, that John was led to write it that way intentionally so that it wouldn't be obviously a, a Christian work or something like that. But understand that he was writing in a time when Christians were terribly persecuted. Uh, the, the, the emperor Domitian was, you know, they were killing Christians all over the place. They would, you know, basically stand you up and, and demand that you worship the emperor. And if you, if you said no, I mean, that was, yeah, like, that was it. Um, and so a lot of what's going on here is Christ through John coming to his people to give them some comfort. But it's done in a, in a, in a way that's a little bit, um, I don't want to say opaque to us, but it, it's at least translucent. You know? And so it's not necessarily obvious on the surface what's going on. Whether that was done to hide the purpose of the letter or not, I, I tend to be skeptical of that. But I, that's some people say that. Ken? Uh, I'm a little caution yeah. the Holy Spirit. Well, what John wrote, what the Holy Spirit exactly. wrote. Exactly. But go back to the first chapter, and it's pretty clear that Jesus is giving him a lot of this stuff. Yeah. The book is called um, The Revelation of Christ. That's how it begins. And so it's yeah. certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And, and we dasn't. As my grandfather, as my father-in-law would say, we doesn't try and separate the parts of the Trinity. So right. all with of John, the above. with John's personality, right? Well, and, and certainly, 
the Holy Spirit uses the personalities of those who are writing. That's why, you know, Mark's writing sounds different than John's. Yeah, which is a really cool thing. I love how he does that. Yes. Well, it's also similar to how Jesus talked when he was alive. Yeah. He, he spoke in parables. Mm -hmm. He said things purposely so that people wouldn't immediately understand. He right. wanted them to think. Right. So John writing with symbolism makes is sense. Very much like what Jesus yeah, did. That's a good point. Um, and and a, a part of that I think that's helpful is that like all scripture and like anything that is revelatory of God, we only understand it with the help of the Holy Spirit, right? And so it's, you know, we pray at the beginning of Bible study that the Holy Spirit is with us as we study because you want the Holy Spirit looking over your shoulder, guiding you into truth. Um, and that's how we come to some kind of understanding of what's going on. Good point. Yeah. Out of the great tribulation, yes. it said, yes. and these people were held up. Uh, out outside, yes. a little different than us today. Okay, tell me more about that. Well, How do you mean? The, the, they said that they walked, the people from the tribulation washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Right, right. And uh, we're not in the tribulation. <coughs> oh, so I would offer that we are. Well, okay. Um, I mean, that, and and that's, that's actually a helpful way to understand what's yeah. going on here because what I would suggest to you is the tribulation encompasses the entire time from Christ's ascension to his return. Um, and, and so those who are in the tribulation is all of us. Right, all of us believers who are living in, this, in that time frame between his ascension and his return. And it's a time that is marked by um, Satan having some power to be out and about doing his thing, and yet he's restrained, and and we'll get to it a little bit later in Revelation. It talks about him being chained. Um, that, that there are limits placed on what Satan can do until that time when God the Father says, "Okay, you know, it's time." Life is life on Earth is a tribulation. Yeah, well, and I, <laughs> that's kind of yeah, what I was going to yeah. say next was I, I don't know about my life has had some tribulation up in it. And, and I think we've all experienced that, um, that we go through. Heck, we just went through, a, we're in the midst of a pandemic. There's some tribulation. That tribulation. Yeah. So what I think is interesting about that is modern culture has been conditioned, maybe that's a way to say it, by some really bad theology about revelation that has sort of glommed onto the, these concepts that you see in Revelation and turn them into something that I don't think they are. Um, one of them is the 144,000. I mean, there are some people who think that's a literal number, which is interesting to me because it, it's, is it, what church bodies call Jehovah that? Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. For them, that was a literal number until they reached like 144,000. They're like, why are we still telling people about this? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not sure what happened to it after that. We've got to start kicking some out so others can come in. Or so, I don't know. But, be more selective. You'll be more selective. Well, what, what they believe is each generation, there's 144,000. Well, sure. Let's see where it says that. Yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> so, 
But the Left Behind series, y'all know how I feel about that. We've talked about that already. But but that's one of those things. The Left Behind series glommed onto this idea of tribulation and rapture and, and, and made it into something that I think sort of grabbed a hold of, of kind of our modern cultural sensibilities. And so we hear rapture and we go, oh, yeah, I know about that. It's not that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... There, I think it's it's helpful to dig into the actual text. I had a professor. There's there's two main categories of theologians in the world. Okay, there are exegetes and there are systematicians. Exegetes tend to focus on the text of the Bible and they get really deep into it and they do text analysis and all that kind of stuff and they understand it, you know, relative to itself. Systematicians want to figure out how this all fits together. What are the pieces? How does you know what is what is the, the Trinity about? And how does all that work? And so they'll they'll come up with a system or, or an overarching model that explains all of it, and then they'll they'll explain that and clarify it with the use of scripture. And one of my favorite professors, they were all my favorites, but one of them once said he was an exegete. He said, Yeah, exegetes are the best because we get to talk about stuff that's actually in the Bible. <laughs> so, so that's what I think we want to do here, is we want to talk about stuff that's actually in the Bible and not the things that the left-behind systematicians made up. Um, okay, so we've talked about the 144,000. I think we've kind of, we're still kind of in the middle of that. Um, no, we're not. We're past it. Um, any other questions about the numbering and all that kind of stuff? Not a literal number. We understand that. Um, the 12,000 times 12 tribes gets you to that number. Um, this has to do a lot with how numbering works in, in the Old Testament or in Scripture generally, and especially in apocalyptic literature. Um, 12 being a number of completion of all the people of God in the 12 tribes. You see it again in the New Testament with the 12 apostles. Um, and then 12,000 is 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Um, 10 being a number of completion gets magnified when it's raised to powers. And so the complete church in complete completion, 12,000 per tribe, 144,000 total. The number is not literal. It's a picture of the overall church of all those who are God's chosen. Okay. That's where we're at with that. Any other questions about numbers? All right. Question number six on your sheet. One of the elders asks John why the multitude is wearing white robes. What is the elders' explanation for their unusual attire? Which I don't see how they be white. This is Leah's conundrum. <laughs> I have never washed anything in blood and had to come out clean. P.S. I've never washed anything in blood. Stop. <laughs> so, so again, there's some imagery going on here, right? So, so what does it mean that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb or whatever the language is? Innocence. Okay. Sinless. Sinlessness. Yep. Innocence. Purity. Purification is a good one. What else, John? I just said purity. Purity, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, think, what are the things that come to your mind when you hear blood and purity and sinlessness and innocence? 
Where does that take your mind? From my dirty, sinless, selfish life to being Christ-like. Okay, you, you are paying attention to the devotion. <laughs> so ultimately, where it leads you to is is Christ on the cross, right? I mean, you can't. That's we can't talk about forgiveness and blood and not pretty quickly arrive at the cross. And and. I think that's a lot of what's going on here is, is we're constantly being pulled back to the cross and back to Jesus as a reminder of what he's done for us. And so we have this picture of this multitude. And man, I hope every church looks like this. It doesn't today, but someday. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, all of them clothed in white robes, made pure, because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Whoa. Isn't that going to be cool? <laughs> really, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be awesome. So the multitude, this multitude is all of the redeemed. Um, I think we've talked about this before. You know, the, the beginning of a funeral service, um, one of the first things that, that the pastor says is, so-and-so has... Um, been washed in the blood of the lamb and, and all of his sins have been covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness, which covered all of his sins. It's, that's not exactly it, but essentially. But, but this imagery of our sins being washed away by the blood of Christ, being covered by his righteousness, all of that I think is very helpful. And so what we got is a picture of all the redeemed, those who have put on Christ, that's symbolic, that robe of having put on Christ the ones who have endured the trials of a fallen world but now stand pure in God's eyes because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I think that's a neat way to understand the forgiveness that God gives to us, that Christ gives to us. Because we, in this world, still struggle with this notion, something that Luther called simul justus et peccator, which is simultaneously saint and sinner. I know that I'm saved. I'm baptized, right? I know that my sins have been covered by Christ. And yet, I also know all the things I've done. And, and, and I know the sinful side of me that still exists and that I still deal with. And Scripture talks about that constant battle and tension between our sinful nature and our spiritual nature that are always battling. And... When we understand that we still have this sinful nature until Christ returns and makes us perfect, that imagery of being covered in Christ's righteousness so that what God sees is not me at core, but the righteousness of Christ. What a blessing. Pastor Linder. Back to your uh, image of the uh, casket. Mm -hmm. Does the Holy Trinity have a call? We don't. We, maybe we do, but I don't think so. I have not seen one. A what? A pall. So a pall is a large linen cover that's used to cover a casket. Um, you'll frequently see them in a church um, service that the casket will be laid over with a white, often with very elaborate embroidery on it. Beautiful, beautiful, very expensive. Yeah, we just we had a simple pall that was white, but it had a red cross on the, the top of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. and, we rolled the casket into the rear of the sanctuary yep. before the family would come in. I had the family put the pole on the Oh, casket. the family did. Cool. 
Yeah. Mm. And uh, that was kind of a special honor for them yeah. to do that. Yeah. And but I, I mean, what it does. He needs to have a ball. Well, the challenge has been laid out. I fully expect we'll have one by the end of the week. Um, <laughs> what's, what's really cool about something like that, and, and there's so many things that go on in worship and in funerals and all that kind of stuff, is it gives you another way of understanding what Christ has done. Okay? So there's an actual visual thing that you can look at when we talk about being covered by the robe of Christ's righteousness, that you can look at the casket and see this white cloth covering it and go, oh, I, I see that. I get that. And, and it's a really powerful way to understand it. And there's, there's lots of cool stuff like that. Like, here's an example. Um, Generally speaking, tradition is that for a lay person who dies, their casket is oriented with their feet toward the altar. Okay? A pastor, on the other hand, is oriented with his head toward the altar. Now, think about why that would be. When they rise again, the, the lay person would stand straight up and be facing the altar. The pastor, with his head to the altar, would stand up and be facing the congregation. It's a reminder of the positions that they held in life. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. What was that? What about all those people being cremated? <laughs> well, you just had to orient the urn just right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Other th thank you for that observation. That's cool. Anything else? Thoughts on that? In, in the movie that they had when uh, all the people, you know, one will be called, one will be... Right. And one, the other, all their clothes were left on the earth. So, ah. yeah. <laughs> you take nothing with you. Hopefully, they're going to give you a white robe when you come in. It's like going to the hospital or something. <laughs> all right. So, yes, Gail. The white cloth, you're going back to. Funeral. Yes. Um, and I heard a couple of definitions, but is, is it also associated with baptism? Yeah, in a sense, yeah. Because baptism becomes the means by which we are covered in Christ's righteousness. Because at my mother's, mm -hmm. um, and she was very active within the church, uh -huh. they did that, but it was referred to as her baptism. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. But I mean, that, that's, that makes sense because our salvation... So th there's... Here, I'll give you a theological lesson, right? There's a, there's a distinction made between what's called objective justification and subjective justification. And what it means is this. Objective justification is I know that Christ died for the sins of the world. Okay? I, I get that. Subjective justification is I know that Christ died for my sins. Do you see the distinction? It's important, but subtle. That is, I get it that, that Jesus was the one who died, and yet I'm not entirely sure that I'm saved. The other one is, I know that it applies to me too, subjective. And the way we come to subjective justification, the way we know for a fact that Christ's sacrifice is for me, for you, is, John, I'm going to call on you because you said it the other day. I'm baptized. I, I know that 
water was poured over my head combined with the word of God by his command that, that God used that to claim me as his own. And, and therefore, I know that I am saved because I'm baptized. And so that certainty of salvation for me personally lies in my baptism. And then that becomes the way that I can explain to somebody else that it's okay to lay that white pall over my casket because I was baptized and therefore claimed by God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, those, I mean, it, it, I think the reality is that you, you, it's not possible to rip apart baptism and salvation. Those two always are right. joined together. Yeah. Other questions, thoughts, observations? Well, not all churches use that call that I've been to. That's true. That's true. And it's not like it's something Even commanded my, by... Yeah. My husband's, first husband's funeral. Yeah. There was no call. Yeah. yeah. And that's okay. I and mean, that's, it's a, it's a helpful tradition that points us to Christ and to his salvation. But it's not like it's demanded or, or commanded by God or something like that. Oh, yeah. right. Wear white, you know. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's, it's a helpful tradition, but it's certainly not required. Uh, uh, fall is an expensive piece of cloth. Yeah, it's expensive. It is. It's expensive. I mean, you're talking it's not, it's frequently not upwards of, it can be $1,500 or more. I mean, they can be very, very expensive. So it's down upon request? Um, yeah, I mean, at my last congregation, we had a poem. And, and I always offered it to families and said, I, I think this is a helpful way to remember what Christ has done. Um, you know, it's, I think a lot of churches just sort of do it as a matter of course. Um, but I've it's never a, seen one. Have you not seen one? It, no. it's a, that was the first one I ever It's seen. a beautiful reminder of what Christ has done for us, which, which I think is cool. And, you know, ultimately, a funeral is not about the person in the casket. It, a Christian funeral is about Christ and what he has done for the person in the casket. And so it, it's, it, John, you'll, I think, agree with this, that they're the easiest sermons in the world to write because I don't have to talk about law. I mean, law is laying there in a casket in front of you. You get that. I get to talk about grace and God and Christ and, you know, all the amazing things that he does for us. Wow. So. The only hard ones are when they're children. Yeah. I had one family... They had two. They had two little boys, uh, but then she got pregnant and miscarried. Mm -hmm. No, the, the child died at, at birth. Uh, but there were three children that died at birth with this one woman, and I was running out of things to say. If you, yeah, and that was just sad. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, yeah, well, I. That's that that's where that how long Lord cry comes out of you. But another crude way people being the way that they are, when they see a, a casket mm -hmm. and uh, you know, mine might be just a tin box and that's all. I mean, right. it won't be mahogany. And so people look at, oh, you know, Sherry only got him a tin box. <laughs> and so people will oftentimes look at a casket and make silly judgments. Mm -hmm. 
Just down at the expense of the task. Yeah. Like that's a statement about the worth of the person. Yeah. It's not, by the way. But, okay. So, this multitude, back to the question number six, this multitude is all the redeemed, all those who have put on Christ, um, and the white robe represents that righteousness of Christ that allows them to stand before the throne of God and to serve him constantly. So, how does Paul support this imagery in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4? Anybody want to find that and see what he's got going on? I have it already. Go ahead. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. All right. Somebody take that apart. How? What is Paul using as his metaphor, and how does he evoke the same imagery that you're seeing in Revelation with the white robes? I think something about the tent is a little protection of of person, I guess. Okay. Uh, when they're being yeah. clothed. I mean, yeah. So, what do you think he's when he talks about a tent? What's he talking about? Body. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I think our tent is our temporal body. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have this tent, we have this body that we've been given for the time that we live on earth. Um, but we know that this is not always going to be our home, right? We're not always going to live in this body. Um, there's going to come a time when we will be resurrected and our bodies made perfect. And scripture is a little bit you know, vague on that, but basically, you get this imagery. Paul talks about it in uh, in Second or First Corinthians fifteen. He talks about this idea that that it's like a seed falling into the ground and then rising again, perfect. So somehow or another, our bodies will, when we die, fall into the ground, burial, and when we're raised again on the last day, then it will be made perfect. I'm looking forward to that. That gives us hope. I'm going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, but. Um, <laughs> Young Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, <laughs> I'll look like young Elvis, you know, or whatever. But, um, but so you have this imagery that, and I, and I think this is important because our, our theology is that your body matters. Okay, it's not this thing that you discard when you die and never ever need again. That you will be bodily raised from the dead on the last day and you will get your body back, made perfect. But our bodies matter. And, and what it comes down to, I had a pastor friend of mine who used to depict it like this, and you gotta help me because I don't have enough hands. But he says basically, you know, Adam was made from the dust of the earth, right? Brought together and then enlivened by the, the breath of God, right? By the spirit of God. He breathed life into it. So you have body and soul. They come together and make a person. Now, at our baptism, something else amazing happens. Give me your hand the same way. And that is our body and our soul get joined together to the Holy Spirit who becomes part of it. Okay? So what happens when we die? Well, our body and our soul get ripped apart and the body is placed in the ground for burial, but we remain with the Holy Spirit 
until the last day when our bodies are made perfect again and it all comes back together. That's the resurrection that we look forward to. This is the hope that we have in Christ is not this sort of generic Christianity thing, I'm going to die and go to heaven. Yeah, but wait a minute, let's talk about what that means. Because what that means is you will be bodily raised from the dead to live in the new heaven and the new earth where everything is made perfect the way it was back in Eden. And you will live a bodily life with God. Wow! Isn't that cooler than, I'm going to die and go to heaven. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, that's the hope that we have. That's the astonishing thing that God has called us to and promised us, is, is that. And so Paul talks about the tent and all that kind of stuff, and he talks about um, we want to put on our heavenly dwelling, which is kind of this imagery that we got in Revelation, that in heaven we get to put on our perfect bodies clothed in the righteousness of Christ with these white robes. And so you see this same kind of imagery coming through in Paul's writing that, that is in Revelation as well. So how is, oh, look, we got one more. How is the same image used in Zechariah's vision of Joshua in Zechariah 3, 3 through 9? And I know you all have Zechariah marked because you probably spent a lot of time reading that one. Not? Weird. Zechariah 3, 3 through 9. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Have I read further than I should have? No. Um, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, we know what that means, right? All seeing. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Anybody want to make a guess on what that day is? Judgment. Judgment. Yeah, the last day. That's when everything finally comes. And so we, we live in, the way Luther puts it, is we live in this now but not yet. Right? That, that we have this gift of salvation that is ours today, right now, and yet it's not fully realized until the last day. And there's that tension between now and not yet. I know that I'm saved, but I also know that I'm still sinful, and I live in this broken, sinful world. And until Jesus comes again, I'm done. That's where that prayer comes in, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because I'm looking around. <laughs> I'm ready to be done. Um, how do Isaiah's words then compare in uh, 118? 
This must be Revelation 118. Um, well, no, maybe not. Though you're, maybe it's 718. No, that couldn't be. I don't know where that is. No, Isaiah 118. Oh, Isaiah 118. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not the smartest. What is it? It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Thank you. So, how does that kind of echo what we're reading in Revelation? There's, there's your white and the red of the blood and how all the, everything is made pure um, by the blood. Cool. It's that purity represented by the white color. Um, there are number seven. There are few promises more exciting than the ones found in Revelation seven fifteen through seventeen. Uh, the redeemed will serve the Lord into eternity, and there'll be no more hunger, thirst, heat, or sorrow. God will dwell with men. So specifically, therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Um, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How does Isaiah chapter 4, 4 through 6 describe this glorious future? Isaiah writes this, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy and there will be a booth or a tent for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Um, that imagery, a cloud by day and the smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night, does that sound familiar? Exodus. Exodus. That's, so what does it symbolize? What's the, what's, what does that mean? God's presence. There you go. God's presence. As he brought the Israelites out of Exodus, out of Egypt, he was with them always in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And so here, what you've got, Isaiah is describing is, hey, in the end, all of this filth and muck and brokenness and sin and all this junk that we got to live with now is washed away. And um, there's this a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. That is to say, God is with his people all the time. Um, and this canopy of protection, giving shade from the heat and refuge and shelter. So God is with us always, protecting, watching over us, giving us refuge and, and comfort. Nice, huh? Hmm. Sounds like the Garden of Eden before it's a sin. And rightly so. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> because it, it's, that's what it is. It is the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin, where everything was perfect and was the way God intended it to be. Well, I think something else to, to remember is who Isaiah was writing to and where 
in the world this occurred. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Israel, it's hot. There's not very much green in quite a bit of the country. When it rains, it's a celebration every single time because it's yeah. just not that often. Right. So the idea of, you know, drinking water is stored in reservoirs, you know, cisterns and, and things like that. So in order to, to, to say you can drink whenever you want and your thirst will be 100% satisfied is a huge gift for people at that time. Yeah, that means And that. to have shelter from the sun mm -hmm. yeah. is a huge gift because they lived outside. Mm -hmm. They couldn't go into houses all the time. And not for nothing, God had not yet invented Willis Carrier, mm -hmm. who invented the air conditioner. Yeah. <laughs> but to imagine us going out, yeah. you know, go, go drop down into a desert and live for three days. Imagine yourself doing that and how grateful you would be for water and a, and a cover. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Pastor. Have you ever read or, or seen any thought about heaven? being the earth restored to the Garden of Eden? Um, probably not, not specifically that. Floating but... around Saturn and Neptune. It's <laughs> 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 kind of a little weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, but the I way I've always, what I've always read and, and sort of understood was that it, it's, that what God promises basically is a recreation of the Garden of Eden, not a restoration to it. And, and, and the distinction, I think, comes because some of the imagery that Jesus uses, he talks about the, the earth melting and yeah. the, you know, the destruction of the earth and all that kind of stuff, and a new heaven and a new earth. But, but yet embodying the perfection that was there at Eden. And there was, I don't remember who wrote this, but there was some, some really good stuff kind of about the arc of the narrative of the whole Bible. This idea that we started out with perfection and, and God created us and parked us in the middle of perfection. And then the fall into sin hosed all that up, broke it and everything. But, but the deepest desire of our souls is to be back there. And the arc of, of the biblical narrative, it comes to its climax with Christ on the cross which all leads us then finally to the to the conclusion where we get back to what we always wanted to be where we always wanted to be which is a new heaven and a new earth that has been recreated in the image of Eden and perfect just like it was that's that's what I've always seen but I I, I think I don't know. Uh, yeah. We have to hang around while we have to see what it's going to look like. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, that's all right. Or die and then you get to come back later. So it's, <laughs> it's all good either way. All right. Um, a similar description is used to describe Israel's return from captivity in Isaiah 49, 8 through 10. How do these verses compare to Revelation 7, 15 through 17? Somebody want to find those real quick? Yeah. Thus says the Lord. In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. Cool. 
They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of the water, he will guide them. Cool. Do you hear that resonance between that description and Revelation? That same thing, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more heat or scorching sun, guided to springs of living water. Doesn't that sound familiar? Point being, John's not creating something new or different. He's basically presenting to us a promise that God has been making all along. Right? When Isaiah was privileged to hear God's promise of release from exile, to what other event in the distant future was he also a partial witness? And the answer to that, of course, is the end of time and salvation for all believers. Um, I've said it before, and maybe you've heard me say it, but if you want to understand Jesus and what's going on, go read Exodus. Because Exodus essentially is the salvation plan on a small scale. And, and God calls his people out of captivity to the Egyptians and brings them out and brings them to a promised land. Take that and blow it up. And what you have is God calling us out of captivity to Satan and to sin and bringing us to the promised land, which is the new heaven and the new earth. So our salvation is Exodus writ large. And, and, and it's helpful to kind of see what happens in Exodus to understand that when Jesus comes, he's basically redoing Exodus, but he's the stand-in for the Israelites. And all the things that they hosed up, he does perfectly. Okay? So that's our lead-in for the next study, which will be Exodus, I guess. Um, I'm going to wrap us up right there. What have we got, like a half a question here? Ah, we've got some to work with next time. Um, so a couple of things. Next week, no class. Rally day. Come spend some time with us down there. Cheer for the kids. Celebrate all that's happening with God and all the things that he's doing through Bible study for adults and kids and youth and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so we'll have some breakfast stuff down in the Life Center. Um, come join us for that. We'll ask you maybe to sign up and say that you're committed to coming to this class and continuing or one of our other adult classes. Um, the next week... Um, August 29th, I will not be here. That doesn't mean you're off the hook. <laughs> um, Pam has graciously agreed to take over. She, it, it's going to be, uh, we'll put pause on Revelation and you can teach whatever you want. Um, so Pam will have a class for us on the 29th and then I will be back. I don't know what the first weekend is in September, but I'll be back for that. Um, 29th, 28th is my birthday and we're going to Mississippi to visit with my son and his wife. So looking forward to that trip and we'll vacation. So let's close with a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, the revelation that you have given us in Scripture uh, of your love for us and your plan of salvation for us, all of it pointing to your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would deepen our faith, draw us ever closer to you, um, that we might know that salvation and be confident in it. Um, we thank you that you have given us that through our baptism, and we pray that you would continue to strengthen our faith through all our days. Um, be with us as we go forth from here. Guide and lead us in all that we do, that it might be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. 
We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody.